Awkwardly trying to begin another episode of Deviant Women. I am Lauren. And I'm Alicia. And we are your hosts as we take you through a variety of deviant women from history and mythology and the contemporary world. Contemporaneity. Contemporaneity. We've learnt the word. And literature. But I'm in the habit of saying contemporary world now. Oh dear. We're up to episode 12. We should really (laughs) have gotten this down pat by now. We should. That's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Moving through that. We've made it through the first minute of the podcast. (laughs) Let's do some talking about some real things. Yay! What are we going to be talking about this week? Well, we're delving into the realm of mythology for the first time properly, and I'm really excited about it. It is exciting. We've promised mythology multiple times, and this is the first time that we're actually really going to get stuck into it. And I'm hoping that this is a mythological figure that some people were maybe not quite so familiar with. I certainly wasn't. Yeah. And the reason that I found out about this figure is because we got a tweet from at the academic chick and she recommended this person to us so which is exciting because that's our first proper listener request yep and just so you know as well we have had a few other requests and we do plan to get to all of your requests yes so we haven't forgotten people. about them we're not playing favorites <laughs> we're uh, they're on a list yeah and it might take us a while to get to them but, but we're going to be around for a while yeah we're not going anywhere so there's plenty of time for us to eventually get to your request yep. and if you'd like to help us stick around so that we can get to your request how is that for a segue? That's a good segue. And if you'd like to do that by supporting us in a monetary fashion, what? then we have news for you. We do. We have an exciting announcement. Um, well, it's exciting for us. Maybe it's not so exciting <laughs> for you. You at home may not be like quite as <laughs> um, excited. But today we are launching our Patreon page. Hooray! So by the time you finish listening to this episode, you can go to the Patreon page live. Yep. And you can get on board to subscribe and donate to us and help us with our running costs. Because despite the fact that Lauren promised me that doing a podcast would not be expensive. promises. I'm pretty sure when you first suggested this. I thought it was like cheap. I don't think it was going to be nothing. I don't know. I don't know if there was ever any. I don't mean. I feel like I didn't say anything about it. We should have this fight privately. (laughs) Not in the middle of the podcast itself. But the point is, it will help us to pay for our running costs, for sound equipment, for um, monthly site fees. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And to pay stuff. our poor suffering sound guy <laughs> who we've really put to work yeah. this week. And also he's been put to work because some of our audio equipment we may not be the greatest. Some very bad technical difficulties. <laughs> so if you support us, we might even be able to upgrade, which would be wonderful. That would be fantastic. So you can find our Patreon page by following the link that will be on our blog. Yep, www.dvwomenpodcast.com. And I'm sure you can just... Google that yeah. as well. And as well as that, we also have some really exciting merchandise that is really exciting. It is exciting. So you can get on board and see what the merchandise is at the Patreon page. Let's not tell people what it is. Let's force them Let to go them and have, to a, have look. a look and see if you want to buy it or uh, subscribe. And we will be looking into setting up a shop that might allow you to purchase it yes. as well. Yay! So quite a few exciting announcements. There's one more exciting announcement before we get to our <gasps> mythological figure. Oh. And this is about our next episode. Are we going to reveal now? I don't know. We can, let's keep it till the end. All right. So just you stick keep around. Listening. Keep listening, Exciting people. announcement number two coming up at the end. Hooray. It's pretty great. All right. Well, I think we've laid down enough exciting groundwork. Let's Get our heels kicked in. Is that a phrase? I don't think that is a phrase. I mixed two up, but you get my drift. Yeah, it's not a phrase. Also, before we start, we should just say that Lauren and I, uh, this episode, we may have had a couple of uh, shots. We did. Before we began. (laughs) We did have those Kahlua and Baileys. Kahlua, Baileys and Maduri. And Maduri. In the colloquial world, that kind of shot is called a quick fuck. A quick fuck. (laughs) Just so you know. And they were like the shot of choice when I was a teenager. Of course. Well, they're pretty delicious. So yeah, they're it's not pretty delicious. Surprising. If you were also a teenager in the 90s, you may well know. What a quick fuck's like. <laughs> <laughs> See, look at the different ways you can interpret that sentence. You may well know what a quick fuck's like. Yeah. Anyway, we're talking about the drink, of yeah. which we've had a few. Of which we've had two. But hopefully that will make 
today's podcast even more exciting for you. It always does. So okay. we're in mythology, Lauren. We're in mythology. Let's step back into epic time. All right. We're no longer in our world. We're in another world now. We're in the world of Norse mythology. And epic time is that sort of magical realm of mythological time. Yeah. So the rules are a little bit different in epic time. That's important thing to keep in mind. But it also means, of course, that there's all kinds of different possibilities in the realm of what is possible. There's a realm of possibilities in the realm of what is possible. Jesus Christ. It was only two quick fucks. (laughs) (laughs) You get what I mean. All right. Let's do it. So... The figure today that we're talking about is Gudrun. There's a couple of different Gudruns in Norse mythology. So this is Gudrun of the Niflung peoples. I actually don't know if they're the family or a clan. I'm not quite sure, but she's from the Niflungs. She's most prominently known from the Edic poems, significantly in the um, Atlakvida. Atlakvida? I don't know. It sounds impressive. I'm going to get a lot of the names wrong today. Sorry, I apologize for that. (laughs) There's nothing new about that. We're we're really good at getting names wrong. We try, though. We really try to pronounce things. We really try. It's just that I have a bad tongue. (laughs) (laughs) You have a bad tongue? And it's not. Yeah, anyway. Sure. She's also known from the Vorslung saga. Which is a really great saga. I'm going to be talking super quickly about the Vorslung saga, but I highly recommend that if anyone wants to know some more about the story or wants the backstory to this one, then go ahead and read the Vorslung saga. It was a really good time. That's your saga of choice. That's my saga of choice based on all the very many sagas that I have read. (laughs) Today, we're going to focus on Gudrun. So I'm going to enter her story a little bit of a way through Ooh, the original res. Yeah, we've I'm done going media res. Oh, we've done that before. We're going to do it again. Yeah, we're going to do it again. So if it's a little bit different from what you have read in other sources, that's just because I've compiled a bunch of stuff together and I'm just telling Gudrun's story here, Let's okay? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So we're going to begin when Gudrun has a prophetic dream. Oh, I love prophetic dreams. Yeah, me too. I have them all the time. Do you? Once or twice, I reckon I have. <laughs> That's good. Well, you can identify them. I can. We could totally identify who has this prophetic dream. And in it, she sees a golden stag in a forest. Gudrun is the only one of this hunting party to be able to catch it. But when she gets there, she sees that there's this other woman standing over it. This other woman draws her bow, brings down the deer. Okay. Mm. Then she tosses Gudrun a wolf cub covered in the blood of her brothers. That is random. It's pretty portentous. Did Gudrun have a lot of cheese before she went to bed that night? I reckon she must have. Yes. Because that's the only reason that you'd have a dream like that. (laughs) Sure is. The Um, consumption of too much cheese. (laughs) So she wakes up from her cheese dream and she's like, what the fuck was that? (laughs) I know of a sorceress who may be able to help me. Even though Gudrun's own mother, Grimhild, is a sorceress, in case you can't tell from her name, Grimhild. It's a pretty sorcery name. sounds like the name of a sorceress, but she's going to seek out the help of another sorceress and a Valkyrie, (gasps) Brynhild. So Valkyries, they're such a Norse thing that we should all be familiar with. Apparently they're the shield maidens of Odin. Yeah, so they're like warrior women who basically go to the battlefields and choose out who should live and die. Yeah. And Brynhild, she broke the rules though. She did, yes. And she chose to let someone live who Odin wanted to die. So she went against him. So Odin has her imprisoned in a keep surrounded by fire. A ring of fire? A ring of fire. Ring of fire. Oh, wait, you did with a different part of the song to me. Burn, burn, burn. Ring of fire. Is that that song about Gudrun? Yes. How did you know? It's so not. It is. So not. He wrote that about Gudrun. Did not. After he had a cheese dream. Don't quote us on that. It's made up. Okay. Nevertheless, Gudrun decides she's going to go and seek out Brynhild's help in interpreting the dream. So she goes to the keep, gets through the fire somehow. Just because mythology, she can. She, I guess it's because she's a woman. Or is um, it because she like yells over the fire? Maybe she does she's that. She's just like, hey, yeah. I had this dream. Could you just yell back what you think it was about? That's what. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what she's doing. Yelling yeah. the dream at Brynhild. But Brynhild interprets it. She tells her that a man named Sigurd the famed dragon-slaying son of Sigmund of the very important Volsungs family will be her husband. However, she will lose him and be forced to marry another. And then she's going to have a very unhappy ending. Brynhild does tell her what this unhappy ending kind of entails, but I'm deciding to keep that withheld All for right. the purposes of There'll be a reveal. Spoilers. Yes. But let's just say, of course, it's a prophecy, so this isn't good. Another thing... Is prophecies, of course, in 
epic time, these are real deals. Like you can't really escape a prophecy. You can't avoid a prophecy. And the more you try to avoid a prophecy, the more you'll just make it happen. Exactly. Just like when Tiresias was Tell- like, hey, dude, you're going to kill your mother. And no. he tells Oedipus he's going to kill his father and marry his, his mother. mother. Yeah. And Oedipus is like, I'm out of here. But yeah. it doesn't work. The prophecy of prophecies. It always comes back mm. to get you no matter what you do. Can't avoid it. So, of course, Gudrun's like, oh, shit. All right. Well, that sucks. She's still got to go home, so she leaves. I'll just go home and wait for that to happen. Wait, yeah. And I imagine Brynhild watching her with dagger eyes as she rides out of the keep. Ah. Because Brynhild has had a version of this dream before. Ooh. So Sigurd, the man in the, from dream. the dream, he actually came to her keep a little bit earlier. <gasps> he already knows Brynhild. Yes. The two mm. have actually known each other quite well. They fell in love. <gasps> so Sigurd is... As I kind of mentioned, he is a really important figure in the Volsung saga. If you want to know more about his story, do go and read the Volsung sagas. It is great. But for the purposes of this story, we just need to know two important details. The first is that he has managed to come in possession of the cursed ring and Varanaut. Right. Okay? Yeah. The second is that he killed the dragon Fafnir and took his gold. Oh, he has dragon gold. He's the owner of the cursed ring. And some very important <laughs> dragon gold. Don't know if this story is familiar to anybody. Yeah. Um, well, interestingly enough, <laughs> there is a version of this story that Tolkien wrote. Yeah. And of course, Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame. What you? Cursed ring. Cursed ring. Golden gold, dragon. Dragon horn. Sounds all very familiar. And at least he's not even like pretending that he ripped it off because he wrote a poem of Sigurd. And, that's right. He um, did it his own translation, Gudrun. and he did his own translation. And I, I just recently read the Tolkien version of this same story, and I think that he maybe comes up with a few of his own devices to fix up some chronology. Yeah, and some logic there's a few issues. like weird logic issues, and we're about to come up to one of them. So one mm. of them was like, okay, so but why does Gudrun just like? by Sia after hearing this terrible prophecy from Brynhild. The next is with this little bit of backstory that I'm going to give about Brynhild and Sigurd. So Sigurd has come upon Brynhild's keep after slaying the dragon, getting the cursed ring. The two fall in love and he proposes to her with Andvaranaut the cursed ring. Seems like not a very good idea. And he was able to get through the ring of fire. Yes, because he has like this magic horse. I think it was a horse given to him by Odin. Yeah, magical horses are really handy for getting through rings of fire. Yeah. <laughs> how, I, how, how I do it when I do it. Do you have like Pegasus? Yes, I have, a, yeah. Yeah, I have a, a Pegasus. That's yeah. true. Cool. But while Sigurd is with her, they're having a great time. They fall in love. It's all very beautiful. But... She has her own version of the dream in which she does see Sigurd marrying somebody else, coming to a very awful, terrible end. Grizzly end. But despite this, she lets him go off to continue his adventuring because he needs to prove to her that he is worthy of her hand, right? Getting through a ring of fire is not enough. To me, if I had had that prophecy, I had my man with me, I'd be like, wow, maybe you should just stay here in this keep with me. Let's just make a life for ourselves. They have a daughter together, Oslung, who goes on to marry Ragnar Lothbrok, who people might be familiar with from the show Vikings. Uh, Yes, absolutely. But yeah, I would just be like, maybe you should just stay here and not go off adventuring because otherwise the prophecy is going to come true. I However, guess she knows there's no point in trying to avoid it. Well, that's the thing. I guess he's just like, okay, well, I'm going to go now to go adventuring and definitely not with the intention <laughs> of enacting anything that will cause this cataclysmic version of events as the prophecy foretold. <laughs> that's not what I'm doing. It's not what he's doing. Sure. So he does continue his adventuring and he comes across Gudrun's house. Her father, Gyuki has a great hall. He's a very important nobleman as well. So there's Gyuki, her mother Grimhild, and then she also has three brothers, Gunnar, Hogni, and Gotham. So they're all in the keep. Sigurd comes up. He must have, like, looked pretty impressive. He's got all of his golden armor that he stole from the dragon, so he's probably all shiny, galloping up on his majestic magical horse. Yeah, who wouldn't want a piece of that? I know, I'd be, like, swooning from the yeah, window. definitely. He arrives in the Great Hall, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're Sigurd. Why don't you stick around? But Sigurd's like, nah, I've really got to press on, guys. I've got my girls at home. Got to go out and prove that I'm good enough for her. Yeah. Grimhild decides that Sigurd looks like he would make a pretty good son-in-law. So she brews him this ale. And so while all the guys are sitting together in the Great Hall, having a few drinks, she gives him this drink. Sigurd has a swig. Suddenly he forgets all about this woman that 
He wouldn't shut up about two seconds before. In fact, he forgets why he was on his journey in the first place. And so he's like, you know what? Don't have anything important going on. How about I join you guys in whatever you're doing? And of course, Kyuki's like, yeah, great. Fucking bonus. Sure, you can <laughs> hang out with us. So they go off like raiding and doing Viking things together. Pillaging. For a cu- yeah, Pillaging. probably. For a couple of years, Gudrun and Siga get to know each other. And when he returns, they get married. Oh, and stage is- one of prophecy fulfilled. Yeah, that's right. So this is the ale of forgetfulness, by the way. That's that- what Grimhild gave oh. Siga. So he has. Hence why he forgot everything. Literally forgotten everything about Brynhild. And it's been a couple of years. And Siga and Gudrun, it seems that they are genuinely in love. So. It's not like he's cheating on Brynhild with... Well, he's forgotten about her. He's just completely forgotten about her, yeah. And as far as Gudrun is concerned, he's just completely devoted to her as her husband. So it's all good. They're very happy. And I'd like to say that they uh, lived happily ever after. But they don't. They don't. But they did for a little while. They have two kids. Sigmund... Sigmund Jr., I guess. Not Jr. because his dad is Sigur, but like there's been a lot of Sigmunds, a few Sigmunds before him. And Svanhild, another Hild. More Hilds. They uh, do continue living quite happily for a little while. Gudrun is good at this point. <laughs> she is good, wife. Until her mother, Grimhild, decides that it's time for her brother, Gunnar, to find a wife. And what better a wife might there be than the famed Valkyrie and sorceress, Brynhild? Uh oh. So something else that we should maybe just touch on really quickly here is Brynhild as a character, because she's actually really interesting and important, I think, in the yeah, story. Yeah, and there's a few versions of Gudrun as well, and obviously there's a Germanic version of this whole story, but we're kind of looking at the Norse version mm. of this story. So the Brynhild story that I know of is the Germanic version, and I know of that mainly through Wagner's operas. Oh, uh, yeah. It's just like a random <laughs> thing. For some reason, the ring cycle, we've all sat through like the 15 hours of (laughs) that opera. I don't know why I happen to know that, but I do. And she's very different in the Germanic version. She has a different tale. She also may well be based on a real figure. Oh, yeah. That actually existed in the real historical times. But in this story, she's, as we say, she's a Valkyrie. Yeah. So she's really quite an independent and autonomous woman in this story, which I think is... Kind of at a contrast with Gudrun. Yeah, she sits totally outside the domestic familial Mm. realm. She's her own person. She's an independent woman living in a fiery keep. And it's almost as though, like, if Odin hadn't been punishing her, like, this is a punishment that she's alone in this keep. You know, if Odin hadn't punished her, she'd still just be, I imagine, probably off happily doing her thing as the shield maidens do, you know. But maybe it's part of that curse that means that she is like, okay, well, maybe I will consent to marrying whoever is worthy of getting through this trial of fire. So Gunnar and Sigur ride off together to Brynhild's keep. Gunnar is not really good enough to get through the trial of the flames but Sigur of course is he doesn't remember that he's done this before Mm. but he has nevertheless they swap bodies magically this is epic mythological world so that's able to happen they swap bodies and on Sigur's magic horse Sigurd disguised as Gunnar, or rather, not even just disguised, but literally in the body of Gunnar, is able to ride through and pass the flame test and get to Brynhild's keep. So she has like made a pledge to marry whoever had proves themselves in this way. So the two become betrothed. And poor old Brynhild is deceived. Deceived into marrying Gunnar. Yeah, that's right. It's a bit tricky. He's infiltrated her keep under false pretenses and that sounds like a euphemism it's very yeah it's infiltrating the keep but actually Sigurd is relatively noble really in this scene because what he does is he knows he's not gonna he doesn't have place here to touch Brynhild or do anything that might cause dishonor or anything like that so he places a sword between them when they go to sleep that night to kind of protect her modesty, I guess, yep. for lack of a better, more contemporary way of saying yep. that in the old school sense of protecting her modesty. So in the morning, they come back out. Everything's great. Brynhild believes that Gunnar has proven himself the most worthy of all men to have her hand in marriage. 
So they go home, they get married, the two families live happily ever after. Well, no, obviously not. And also because Brynhild would have, like, gotten back and been like, oh, hey, Sigurd. Oh, hi, Sigurd. You're married to this other chick, Gudrun. Hello, oh, Gudrun, great. and your yeah. two Sigurd children. Yeah, so stoked Ooh, with that. You can imagine her now. She's taken the keep with her, but it's burning symbolically inside. <laughs> it is. Still simmering away. <laughs> but, she, I mean... It's not really clear whether she's really happy with her relationship with Gunnar because at this stage she doesn't know that he's tricked her until one day when Gudrun and Brynhild are bathing together in the Rhine and they get in a little bit of a fight about who has the better husband. Gudrun, of course, is like, well, my husband is Sigurd, son of Sigmund. He's a dragon slayer. He has a lot of gold. He's got fuck tons of gold. Um, he's <laughs> from a heroic lineage. Fuck tons of gold? Not just fuck tons. Quick fucks of gold. <laughs> Quick fuck tons of gold. <laughs> Sorry. Brynhild, meanwhile, is like, well, my husband Gunnar, he made it through the trial of fire. This is a very heroic thing to do as well. Oh, no. Gudrun's like, well, Brynhild. Actually, about that. About that. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> so, as you know, we live in epic mythological time and such things as body swapping as possible. Yeah. And so it's actually. Uh, Sigmund who rode through the flames and came up to your keep. Just by the way. Just so I, you know. With a bit of a smug on her face probably. It's She's actually like, my awesome husband that yeah. did the thing that you think your awesome husband yeah. did. Smack <gasps> a bitch down. Mm. Brynhild doesn't take too kindly to this. I mean you can imagine why. Because not oh, yeah. only has she been tricked I mean, she's been deceived. Yeah. You she's know, married a guy under false pretenses. Totally false pretenses. Yeah. And actually, this is a point I wanted to make just before about that difference between Gudrun and Brunhild is the fact that Gudrun has to marry someone that her family tells her to marry. So mm-hmm. even though she does fall in love with Sigurd, she still only is able to marry him because the family arranges it for them. Yeah, yeah. Her mum literally concocted a, a potion that potion. made him yeah. want to marry her. Yeah. Whereas Brunhild, like the double deception here is the fact that Brunhild lives by her own rules. Yeah. And the person that she marries is based on her own terms. The terms yeah. she set for herself, which is you need to be able to ride through this ring of fire to be worthy of me. Her whole reason for marrying Gunnar was because she thought he lived up to her expectations. And ironically, the one man that she did fall in love with and that she did consent to be betrothed to was the same man who ran through the flames again. So technically, her true love is Sigurd. Yeah. He proved himself twice. Yeah. So it's just this cruel twist of fate that means that they've ended up in these two different cruel, places. Cruel twists of fate. Well, does the prophecy described right yeah oh damn prophecies so Brunhild loses her shit yes totally loses her shit as I think that we can all agree is totally fair enough that is justifiable um (laughs) she goes to bed like in a depression and no one can rouse her she's totally betrayed so she concocts this story right she decides you know what I'm gonna fix this I need to take my vengeance for this wrong that has been done to me. And I think, again, we're all kind of in agreement that she has definitely been wronged. The manner of her vengeance is probably where we will start to get into some, oh, this is epic time. Oh, yeah. This is epic mm. time morality. So what she does is she tells her husband, Gunnar, that when Sigurd came through the flames disguised in his skin, he did not lay the sword between them in the bed. And that, in fact... He had his way with her. Yeah. And of course, this has really real implications. She's accusing Sigurd of rape. If this had been true, it would be. Yeah. And even though the act didn't take place on that night, in a sense, it kind of still is, but on Gunnar's part, because he still got this woman under false pretenses. And so their entire relationship is kind of built on this deception. It's built on a lie. Yeah. But technically, she's accusing Sigurd of rape. This is a terrible, horrible, horrible thing from everybody. And it means that Sigurd must pay with his life. So Gunnar decides to gather his brothers because this is a sin against the whole family. Yeah. Let's remember Sigurd has become their brother yeah. in his marriage to Gudrun. And so they're as good as blood. He gathers the brothers, Hogni and Gotham together, and they decide, yes, Sigurd has to die. Not only does Sigurd have to die, though, but so does his son, Sigmund. Because family vengeance is such a key thing, isn't it? Because it's that whole cycle of avenging. Yeah. And if the son isn't killed then later on when the son's old enough he's just gonna have to avenge yeah his yeah. own father exactly again, it's this endless cycle exactly. of vengeance yep and it's about destroying the whole line you're not just getting vengeance against your husband 
you're eliminating his entire from the world. And so Gotholm, the youngest brother, goes into Sigurd's bedroom at night, stabs him, and unfortunately for Gudrun, also kills her son. So Gudrun obviously is really overwhelmed with grief. She's had her husband murdered by her brothers and her son, who really isn't innocent in all this. But this is an interesting thing about the family dynamics that we need to remember is the fact that, you know, innocent children are not simply seen on their own terms. They don't exist as autonomous beings. You exist as a part of a family collective. Yeah. And so because of those family ties, you stand for your whole family yeah. and you can be used as a pawn in that same kind yeah. of sense of vengeance. So Brynhild, meanwhile, reveals to everybody, I think, that she and Sigurd were once betrothed because she still got Andavarinot, the yeah. cursed ring. Then she tells Gunnar that she wants to burn on the pyre with her lover, right, who is also the man who betrayed Betray her, her and whose downfall she not only prophesized but orchestrated. Nonetheless, she wants to burn next to him. Then she stabs herself through the heart. As you do. So that's the end of poor Brynhild. Well, in Tolkien's version, at this moment, when Brynhild admits that she's lied about Sigurd in the tower, actually having his way with her, there's a moment where Hogni, one of the brothers, says, Woe worth the words by women spoken. And this kind of is repeated a few times when women do something that's seen as evil and manipulative and deceptive. All of this bad stuff has come about because women can't keep their mouths shut. Hello, no, maybe all of this came about because you fucking lied to her in the first place. (laughs) Maybe all all of this happened was because you had somebody else disguise themselves as you and you married her. Because you decided that she was worthy of being your bride. But you'd never considered whether or not you were worthy worthy of being her husband. But for some reason now we're going to make it like, oh, well, look at all the bad shit that's happened just because Gudrun and Brynhild couldn't keep their mouths shut. Uh-uh. I don't think so. Brynhild is also an anomaly in the sense that she doesn't have these family ties, which means that she doesn't have her relationships and her power status reliant on other men in her life. And it also means it's her own honour. That she yes. has to defend. Yes. She's not She's not trying to defend the honour of other family members. It's her. She's yeah. the one that's been betrayed and she's the one that has to write it. So it's kind of unclear also how Gudrun responds to this event because in a couple of versions she's actually said to not weep at all despite the fact that her husband and her son are dead. And that's interesting. Because mm, that's very unwomanly behaviour. And perhaps the emphasis on this detail is an attempt to kind of single her out among women yeah. that she's not like a natural woman in the same way that a lot of other you know as yeah, a wife she's not grieving in the proper way for women she's not yep. displaying proper female grieving behavior yet she is so depressed that she does take her daughter Svanhild and they flee together into the forest so she's still reacting to the event I do think it's important to kind of stress that I think that she really understands why her brothers had to kill Sigurd So even though this distresses her, whether she shows that distress or not, her actions later on kind of indicate that, yes, she is still in mourning for Sigurd, that he was the one true love of her life. But she hasn't cut off her ties with her brothers. They're still a family. She just is like, I just need to get the fuck out of here for a little (laughs) while. So she goes through the forest and she ends up living with King Alf, who is actually Sigurd's stepfather. And a cat-eating alien. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She lives with him for seven years. Seven years is a long time. And in this time, her mother figures out where she's gone to. She comes along and is like, you know what, Gudrun? It's really time you should think about having another husband. Mm. You're still young. You're still beautiful. You can still pump some babies out. Let's get you <laughs> married You want to get onto that now before you get too old. Yeah. Yeah. And Grimhild happens to have the perfect man in mind. Little known dude, pretty upcoming in the world, having some big successes in the East. Don't oh, know yeah. if you've heard of him. He's a man named... Atlee. Oh, yeah. Otherwise. Attila the Hun. Yeah, right. So, of course, we've got the real historical Attila the Hun. In the mythology, he is named Atlee. So, I'm going to call him King Atlee. Gudrun doesn't want to marry Atlee. She's been making this tapestry in the seven years that have passed that are depicting all these great things about Sigurd. Grimhild is like, I don't really care that you don't want to marry this dude because if you don't, I'm going to cause all this magical torment in your life. Mm. So maybe you should just do it. And also because, again, like we said before, Gudrun, she has familial obligations. She has to marry 
That's right. Says. She does. So she does. She travels to the kingdom of the Huns to marry King Atli. And it's not a very happy marriage. As far as all accounts go, she is not that interested in him. Turns out that he's probably far more interested in the gold that she may have inherited from Sigga than he is in her. What a surprise. Nevertheless, they still have two children, Erp and Etel. Erp. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like Wyatt Earp. The yeah. Cowboy. Yeah. 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 Wyatt Earp was named after Earp from it, the... Oh, this is the same as the Johnny Cash thing. This is made up. It's <laughs> not a real thing. It's not. He's really obsessed with the gold. He just goes on about it all the time. And I'm pretty sure Gudrun knows what's up. Like, she's not stupid. But he decides that he's going to send an envoy back to the Nifflings, Gudrun's family, to invite her brothers, who he assumes possess Sigurd's fortune now, to his kingdom for a uh, celebration feast. But as I said, Gudrun knows what's up. And so she decides to try to sneak a message to her brothers of warning. So the first thing is that she writes in runes on a tablet saying, warning, warning, it's (laughs) a trap. It's a trap. (laughs) But a messenger gets his hands on this tablet and he changes the runes. Intercepted. He writes over the top of it so it reads as an invitation. So... But she's a pretty smart woman, so along with the tablet, she also sends the cursed ring and Varanot wrapped in wolf's hair, hoping that her brothers will understand the cryptic symbolism of betrayal. They, despite all these warnings, the brothers decide they're going to travel to the Huns anyway, okay? But they kind of know that Atli wants the treasure, so rather than let him have it, they decide to sink it in the Rhine, rather than let Atli get his hands on it. It's not logical. No, not really. But it's mythological time. So who cares? <laughs> so let's just jump in the So they keep riding to Atlee's house to visit their good sister Gudrun. When they get there, very big surprise, there's an army waiting for them. Oh, it was a trap. Who would have thought? This is where Gudrun really starts to shine. So this is where she gets the most interesting. First thing, according to the original text, she's a little bit drunk. She's had a couple of beers. <laughs> She sees her brother. I like that. It's important to know she's for some reason the text makes it clear that she's had a few beers. Maybe this is in order to like understand what she does next. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Sees her brother. She's like, oh hi, you shouldn't have come. Doesn't work. Atlee demands the gold from them, but they refuse to give it up, and so a fight ensues. And so Gudrun, clad some armor gets out a sword and fights beside her brothers. She's not just going to let them get slaughtered, even though they're kind of idiots for falling into a trap. (laughs) And they killed her husband. Yes. But this is a really interesting thing because in the German version of this story, her obligation remains with her husband. Whereas in the Norse version of the story, the most important relationship is the familial relationship, the blood relationship with her brothers. And that's, yeah, that's hugely important in this part of the story. So yeah, she's fighting alongside them, but of course they're all outnumbered. And so unfortunately they're not successful. The brothers are captured and Atlee actually has Hogni's heart cut out while he's still alive. That's horrific. So Gudrun has to kind of know that her husband did that to her brother. And Gunnar, the other brother, he still wouldn't relent, wouldn't give up the, the treasure. So bound, his hands all tied together, Atlee has him thrown into a snake pit. He just already happened to have a snake pit. Oh, I guess Handy. so. Yeah. You're Attila the Hun. Yeah. I imagine that figures like Attila the Hun have snake pits. You just haven't. He yeah. probably also has a pit with spikes. Yep. An oubliette. An oubliette. I love a good oubliette. Yep. He probably has a troll in the dungeon. Yeah. You know, minotaur in a maze. Excellent. Um, Gudrun, however, she's a good sister and uh, she knows Gunnar. He has some talents, right? So even though his hands are bound, she throws him a harp. What? <laughs> yes. That's not going to help anyone in this situation. Because all this I thought maybe, like, why doesn't she throw him a sword or something? His hands are bound. But, yeah, it was, how's he going to play a harp? Oh, what good is a harp? What good is a harp if you've got some toes with which to play? He has his feet. They're all good. Are you making this up? No. He legitimately plays the harp no, with I'm his feet. No, I'm not making this up. <laughs> he plays the harp with his feet in order to stave off the snakes. What? Yeah. How, how long can a person play well, a harp with their feet for? It, I mean... Me, I reckon maybe a minute, two, Well, max. let's just say Gunnar does it for, I don't know, 
40? I don't what? know. I'm making that up. No way. I don't know. Just max you could play a harp with your feet. Well, eventually an adder gets him. If that satisfies <laughs> you to yes. know that it doesn't work. It does. He does, does get bitten by an adder and he dies. That totally satisfies All right. Me. Gudrun, again, not very happy about this. So let's remember the two really gruesome ways that her brothers died. First one, heart plucked out of his chest while he's still alive. Mm. Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom Yeah, still style. beating. Yeah. yeah, I love it. And... And actually on that, still beating, Gunnar actually comments on the still beating heart. He's like, look how honorable and heroic my brother is because of the way that his heart is beating wow. and bleeding. Yeah. yeah. I, that tells a lot about a person. Yeah. How your heart bleeds. So Kusha's not very happy. She's like properly mad. She's lost her husband and her son. Even though it was her brothers that killed them, I think she still understands the fact that Brynhild's revenge caused this. So her brothers were just kind of... They were pawns in a system of revenge. Pawns in a system of fate. And that's a theme that's going to come up again. But they are still her blood relations. Atlee is her husband. She never wanted to marry him. She doesn't really love him. So a couple of hours later, all of the men are celebrating in the hall, getting drunk. They've put their weapons down. Everyone's just having a good time. Everyone's like, hey, check out how that guy with the toe harp died yeah wasn't that sweet <laughs> hey check out the way that guy's heart got cut out still beating that was sick <laughs> that was bro. sick Gudrun comes into the hall she's like congratulations husband you have defeated my line I now belong to you so she presents him with a golden cup and a plate of food okay I see where this is going oh yeah let's let's take a moment and really absorb where this is going Adley drinks from the cup. He eats of the food. His face turns white. Gudrun, I imagine quite steely-faced at him. She's like, congratulations. I hope you enjoyed your celebratory feast. (laughs) Because what she served him. That's some excellent acting. (laughs) It's really good. In that cup, mixed with the wine, was the blood of hers and Atlee's sons. It was Earp and the Earp other and guy. Atel. And the food was their roasted hearts. Oh. So she watched her husband devour her children. This is another thing that happens so often in these stories. And it's a thing that I really, really quite like. <laughs> I mean, like, obviously I don't condone killing and eating children. Like, that's clearly not a thing that I'm on board with. But I love... The way that this is a, such a trope that happens. It yeah. returns again and again. I wish again. everyone could see your face. How <laughs> delighted it is. <laughs> My delight at the child killing. Oh, this actually reminds me of way back when we started the idea for this podcast. And Lauren sent me a bunch of different little quotes that had been given about women over the centuries that kind of, you know, talk about how women are monstrous and evil and deviant. And in these, yes, in I the know quotes, what you're talking about. there was one yes. quote from everybody's favorite evangelist and generalized yeah. douchebag, Pat Robertson. <laughs> and the quote is that feminism encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. Lesbians, yes. So great! That's what feminism has done for me. Oh, yeah, sure. I did all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. I do them every day. Yeah, and I kill children all the time. <laughs> oh, anyway, that just reminded me of that. Because, but, I mean, well, obviously then Gudrun was a feminist. That's the only reason why well, she kills her children in this regard. <laughs> yeah, because all feminists. That's what we do. But this is interesting because it is an attribute that's made against monstrous women all the time. And thinking about the origins of deviant women, one of the first figures that I kind of came up with when I first sort of like was like, hey, you want to do a podcast about deviant women? We could talk about people like Medea because she is, of course, another really famous child-killing, vengeance-seeking woman. And when we were talking earlier about that other Greek myth that we were going to come back to, this was the one. Yeah. Because – The interesting thing, and I'm skipping a little ahead in Gudrun's story here as well, so maybe we should come back to this too. Do you want me to just tell you what happens now? Yeah. yeah, All right. Yeah, yeah. let's hold on to this idea and we'll come back to this Because what happens, yeah, so she's killed her children to enact revenge upon her husband. She does feel a great deal of grief and torment about this, but on her way, leaving the hall, her husband has kind of passed out for drunkenness and probably horror. She stabs him in their marital bed. He's dead now, on her way out, burns the motherfucking place to the ground, okay, including everybody inside. 
men, women, and children. Everybody burns to the ground. Mm. So she's killed her sleeping husband in their marriage bed. That's an image to hold on to for a moment. Burnt the house down. She then goes to the ocean, gathers a bunch of stones, and tries to drown herself. Presumably because she does feel grief that she has... She sacrificed her children Mm. for her vengeance. Yeah. I mean, as much as we say that, like, yes, it's, you know, she's got to destroy the whole line and that children are associated with their families and... The lineage. Yeah. And they're kind of a pawn in this revenge. It is also a lot about sacrifice. Yeah. And the greater your sacrifice, the more heroic, I guess, your deeds are, according to some people. Yeah, Yeah. and the interesting thing here about how Gudrun is functioning in the society from which she comes is that because now that whole lineage of her own male family, so her brothers are dead. All of Yuki's sons are dead. And Yuki died way back when Mm. in the story Mm. then because of that she's the only man left standing yeah essentially to act out that and she has also kind of taken on this male persona by donning the armor so she's symbolically entered into the male realm by wearing the armor by fighting beside her brothers and then she continues this male role by enacting the blood Revenge yeah. required if there had been another son another left. brother to do it. Yeah. And even in the sort of the cultural time in which this sits, it's still a culturally challenging idea because it's still a woman enacting the responsibility of a man. Of a man. Yeah. She's had to take that on board and do that herself. I suppose as well, the other idea is that because she's killed Atlee, if she hadn't killed uh, an Eatle, mm. would they have had to avenge Atlee later on in killing her anyway? Just, it's just yeah, like an endless know. cycle it is of an vengeance. En- yeah, it is. And this we see in the Volsung sagas as well, where another one of the women does a very similar act, and that also has these kinds of ramifications of backwards and forwards killing down the lines of generations. So um, whether their loyalty, because again, in the same way that Gudrun didn't need to avenge Sigur by killing her brothers, that blood relationship was strong enough and also she understood the necessity Mm. of their action and also perhaps the fact that they were just pawns of fate, that it was really Brynhild who was behind all of this. Um, Maybe her sons, had they survived, would have had a similar kind of response and maybe been like, no, but you're my mother, you are my blood. And my our father did enact this terrible, selfish thing to get treasure. Yeah. That's not a noble reason to kill that's people. That's the other thing as well is because Atlee's entire motivation was greed. Yeah. And that's dishonourable. That's yeah. not an honourable action. Yeah. At least when Sigurd was killed for the supposed crime of having dishonoured Brunhild in the keep, that was something that had to be righted. Mm-hmm. That was a dishonourable act that the only honourable thing to do was to then yeah. kill Sigurd for that. And Brynhild even killed herself after all of this had happened. Exactly. Whereas know? in this version of the story, Atlee's action in killing Gunnar and Hogni is entirely for dishonourable reasons. Yeah. He does it solely out of greed to get their gold. Yeah, so I'm not sure what the responsibilities would be had that been the other way around. So Gudrun, like I said, she runs into the sea with her stones, tries to kill herself, but the waves don't let her. Because mythological waves. Yeah, that's right. They know what's going on. And this kind of also comes back to that whole idea of the fates that she's just sort of destined to keep suffering. And so she ends up washing up in Sweden and marries another king, King Jonica. I think that's how you say it. Again, I apologize if I get it wrong. Um, With him, she has two more, three more sons, sorry, Saul, Erp, and Hamdir. Oh, she has another Erp. Another Erp for some reason. (laughs) I know. It's kind of... And it's actually... It's in poor taste, Gudrun. Well, yeah, and there's another little tiny bit of the story that I want to get to about Erp. So Svonhild comes with her. um, Her daughter from Sigurd. Her daughter from Sigurd. Now, apparently Svonhild is her favourite child, and it might be because she is the sole surviving child of Sigurd, Mm. and she is the one who represents that relationship, which he was the love of her life. He is the one that she still mourns and I guess kind of still in love with. Never so Svonhild is a bit older now, so she gets married, but she is accused of adultery and is sentenced 
This is really horrible. Svanhild is sentenced to be trampled to death by horses. Oh, what a brutal way. Oh, really brutal. And that also reminds me. So Brunhild from ages ago in this story, also possibly a real Brunhilde in the actual historical realms. The Germanic one. In the Germanic version. She was killed by having each of her limbs tied to a separate horse Four horses that then ran off in separate directions and just basically, that's like, that's the noise it would have made. Just like a real popping kind of (gasps) sort of noise. (laughs) So that's how the real historical Brunhilde died. That's like what they did to William Wallace, right? I think it is similar. So yeah, trampled by horses, lots of ways you can use a horse. And once again, awful, horrific death for Gudrun. She's got awful, horrific death number one. (laughs) Sigur stabbed by her brother. Awful horrific death number two. Hogney's heart pulled out of his chest. Awful death number three. three. Brother snake pit. Yeah. And her son by Sigurd was killed as well. Don't forget him. Yes, Sigmund. Yep. Now she's got Svanhild being trampled to death by horses, but she's got three sons now, and she is still a woman hell-bent on vengeance. So she sends her sons away on a vengeance mission, knowing... <laughs> on a vengeance another mission. Another vengeance mission. Are you on a mission? Yes, I'm on a vengeance mission. <laughs> oh, she kind of knows that she's sending them to their deaths in the same way that her brothers... She did try to warn them. She didn't encourage them to go off. She did everything in her power. No, she did everything in her power to avoid that. Opposite situation. This time she's like, okay, probably certain death, but you're not going to let them do that to your sister, are you? And uh, she basically sends her sons off knowing that they're probably going to get murdered over there. And they do. What do you know? So they both avenge Svanhild's death, but they do die in, in that process. process. And so Great. she's, again, made another sacrifice for the sake of vengeance. She's, Essentially, she has sacrificed five sons for vengeful reasons. <laughs> so much venging So to do. much vengeance. It's interesting, though, because vengeance often has kind of female implications. It does. And the varying sort of legitimacy of vengeance in different realms. So this is where Medea comes back in as somebody that we should just draw Mm. a brief parallel to here because obviously we're going to assume that no spoilers on the Medea story. It's It's about 2,000 years years old. Um, (laughs) And hopefully you all know of this story. Another woman who kills her children in an act of vengeance against a husband. Mm. And in that version, in that Greek version, Her act is not seen as loathsome. Her act is seen as an appropriate retaliation for the level of dishonor that's been brought upon her. her. And she's actually sent a golden chariot by the gods. She She gets to to fly fly up into the sunset, basically, because what she's done is appropriate. It's not evil. It's not monstrous. Whereas in this version as well, that one version of the story I've read, when the waves won't drown Gudrun, it's because they actually believe in what she's done as yeah. an appropriate level of vengeance for the act that's being brought upon Ordinarily, her. particularly from a male point of view, it would be completely exactly. It would be a totally legitimate thing yep. to do. Yep. And so in that regard, again, it's this mythological time. It's this epic mm. time. It's this idea that what she has done is a rebuttal that fits the insult it fits the insult but at the same time she's still not sell it like medea gets to go off in her chariot but gudrun suffers so and continues in, to suffer yeah in the poem that comes after the poem where the three sons die she has this like lament she's so upset and distraught she starts to hallucinate sigur coming to her she's basically destined for grief and she knows this So there's no kind of happy ending. She's had all of her vengeance, but really at the end of the day, she's demonstrated how destructive this vengeance has been because she's really, she's literally has nobody left now. Mm. That's the end of her and her line. She sacrificed all of her sons to avenge her brothers and to avenge her daughter. But that sacrifice is, I mean, that's the cultural world of this mythology. Yeah. Like that vengeance is the most important thing that must be upheld. But also this idea that the whole sort of society, the whole fabric of this world really comes undone because of broken oaths in the first yeah. place. It yeah. all comes it's undone. It's like the breakdown of this whole kind of social structure, really. And once that sort of familial bond is broken in one way, 
then it sets off this domino effect yeah. of then everything else that happens and after again, that. And again, this brings that idea of fate back into it because really in that sense, this whole domino of cause and effect in the epic world, that places Gudrun as this sort of, I don't want to say like helpless victim, but she is a pawn of fate. Yeah. Again, this has all been prophesized, which means that there's actually probably not that much that she can really do to ever avoid the consequences but she's still not like celebrated i mean she doesn't get a happy ending she doesn't even get any reprieve from guilt her acts they're both kind of seen as being valorous and courageous but they are also there's little hints of monstrosity there as well in their depiction and i wonder if that is because she is she I don't is, know if they're little hints of monstrosity. <laughs> she does cook her children she could teach, Yeah, she could teach, Yeah, but the way that that is told as the, a monstrous yeah, act. And that's right. And the way that that monstrosity is connected to her femininity. Yeah, that's right. That's kind of downplayed. It's not overt, but it's sort of under the current because she is in some ways presented as, yes, this heroic figure who has taken on the role that should have been that of her brothers and enacted a masculine sort of revenge. But at the same time, she's also an other among women for being this monstrous other, the woman who kills her children, Mm. the woman who isn't the good wife, the woman who isn't submissive. So she's various different kinds of others on this weird spectrum of admiration and heroics and villainy and condemnation. And there's something about women who kill their children that just repeats in stories. Mm -hmm. It's so firmly embedded in different cultural myths and cultural ideas. And things like fairy tales. I mean, the wicked stepmother is just a way of making fairy tales more palatable to children now. They were always originally biological mothers. Stepmothers are always biological yeah. mothers it's just the way to sanitize it yeah absolutely yeah even things like the rose tree the juniper tree this is a particular fairy tale where we have again a mother figure who kills children serves them up it really is a recurring and then there's theme. also all those other mythological figures like lilith and yeah. um Lil- lamia yep another greek figure la llorona yep. is a, a mexican version of this story there are so many stories where we have infanticide Mm. and infanticide is seen as being a particularly evil monstrous crime for a woman to commit not to say that it's not seen as being evil and monstrous when men do it as well and i think we see this more in contemporary news where you know there's a terrible divorce yeah there's a murder suicide yeah that happens and hurting children as a revenge against against the other partner partner. and both genders do this absolutely but there's a real way that the words the language that's attached to women who do this is some Mm. kind of language about it being inherently evil and inherently okay Let's just make it very clear. We do think that killing children is, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. not condoning killing and eating children. No, absolutely by any not. Means. No, <laughs> please don't do that. <laughs> it's not feminist to kill your children. <laughs> We're not saying that that's what you should do. But what we are saying, <laughs> the way that when it's women who enact these yeah. horrific. The discourse around it is different. It is. And the words that are used are different words for women. Yeah. And it is monstrous. It is evil. Because there's just this complete and utter disconnect between the idea of the nurturer, the mother, the giver, the selfless mother. Yeah. It's the complete opposite of that. And it's the total opposite of that. Yeah. And it just always means that the way that women are spoken about is going to be slightly different mm. because it's it's so much more horrific. It's this heightened fear and terror about the breakdown of that maternal idea. Yep. Because really what we have here is this... So Gudrun, I think, really belongs on this spectrum moving between, like I said, she's donned those male symbols of identification, the armor to fight. She's enacted the male role of paying the blood price. But in doing so, she has transgressed those elements of femininity. But she's also still seen as being a strong woman. And 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 she is still doing the right thing by her her family in a way that sacrifice that she's willing to make right that is admirable in some ways so to different audiences and to different readings she can be anything from 
this hero to yeah a villain yeah. which is so interesting just depending entirely on the perspective that you bring to her story and it's entirely it's so complex yeah like it's such a nuanced way of of looking at this story and that looking at the different elements and layers of gender because when yeah. she does take on this role of doing what her brothers do i mean really that should be a valorous act yeah and for any man that does that that's a valorous act and even though as a woman when she does it it is still seen as a valorous act for a woman to do in certain contexts you know like in this epic time in this mythology time the poem doesn't criticize her the original text does not outwardly make her monstrous yeah the text still justifies her acts and still sees them as being valorous acts and it is the proper thing for her to do yeah and again we're just repeating please don't eat your children <laughs> yeah. or serve them to your husband oh yeah or serve them up or to your send them to, to yeah. certain death yeah. like on a revenge mission so many taboos cannibalism as a taboo this also reminds me of titus andronicus which oh is yeah this Killing and serving up of children to eat is not a solely female thing. No. Titus Andronicus being a Shakespearean play where it's the other way around. It's yeah. a man who kills children and serves it up to the mother to eat. Again, spoiler alerts for <laughs> Titus Andronicus. Yeah, it's five inches um, But I also think of The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, if you've ever seen that film. Fucking fantastic I don't film. think I have seen that film. Oh, my God, that film is so great. Also involves <laughs> cannibalism. But, I mean, it's such a taboo and it's such yeah. an interesting thing that comes up in stories about women who do transgress their yeah. roles. It is a real extra transgression yeah. for, for women to take on. Yeah, The feminine yeah. art of cooking. Like, cooking oh, is a course. feminine yes. thing to do. And she's subverted that and used it as her weapon. And when women cook their children up, it's a total subversion of that feminine role yeah interesting well yeah. we probably do need to wrap up so gudrun you really because i could talk about know, women eating children for a long time i know time. you can we'll have plenty of other opportunities where you can talk about child eating women <laughs> okay good we'll come back to this theme i feel <laughs> i do really like monstrous women they really are my favorite thing <laughs> i know me too yeah great. but, but unfortunately we, we are getting out of time yeah and also you can probably hear my cat meowing in the background <laughs> She's Lola's been meowing for a while, so it's probably she's telling us to wrap up. She's ready to, yeah. to go. Yeah. So ultimately, I think Gudrun's a pretty ambiguous figure. She's both a hero and a villain, I think, simultaneously. She's definitely deviant. Yes, definitely. So but, deviant. And this is, again, I still can't even figure out if she would have been considered deviant within her own context. You know, like, is she a victim of fate? Is she a victim of male power structures? They would have been norns, just so you know. Norms. Norns. Norns. They would have been norns. The fates? The fates are norns yeah. in Norse mythology. There you go. I didn't, I didn't know that. Just wanted to add that into um, the mix. Yeah. Or is she powerful woman taking matters into her own hands, getting shit done? Well, she's all of these things. She's all of these things. And you know what? You out there in podcast listening land, you can read more about her. Yeah, you can go do. search out more. Go look at you, the Edic poems and the Vorslung saga. And you can see what you think. Also, if you want to look at the German version, there is a Fritz Lang film from like 1920-something. Fuck yes, I think I might post the link to that. That's the German version. Yeah. So it's, it's a slightly different story, but it still has a same, it similar character. It looks really good. Yeah, pretty good. So pretty. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have to leave our discussion of Gudrun okay. there. Even right. though there's more to be said, we can pick up these themes in a later episode, I reckon. Yeah, definitely. Oh, for sure. But before we go, before we wrap up, we have another announcement. Yes, announcement time. We flagged it at the start of the episode. So, yes, Patreon. Yes, please jump onto Patreon. Get on Show board. Us. We love you. And we hope you love us enough to maybe give us a little bit of money. <laughs> to, to attach a dollar sign this to your life. really life. awkward for everyone. It is. Everyone's finding it awkward. But it will help us support and our running costs and get some better equipment so we have less technical difficulties that don't have to frustrate our sound guy quite so often. <laughs> and also so maybe we could like blank out my cat meow which is <laughs> also be a really right. cool thing. So second announcement time to a drum roll. Yep. That wasn't a real drum, that was just <laughs> us doing it on our legs in case you're unaware of what that was. We're doing a crossover, crossover episode. episode. I'm so excited about this one. Some of you have probably already been watching. Others of you are eagerly anticipating the release of The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, hot right now, even though it's written in like 1980. Yeah. Suddenly it's hot right now. Suddenly all of the themes seem very relevant. <laughs> Suddenly dystopia is it's relevant. Life. <laughs> so relevant. So we're really pleased to announce that we're going to be teaming up with Mayday, the uh, Handmaid's Tale fan podcast 
They do weekly breakdowns of every episode. So if you haven't already checked them out and you're a fan of the show, have a look for Mayday catch up on all their episodes because our next episode we will be discussing the handmaid's tale with them hooray it's gonna be really exciting and if you're in the u.s if you're listening to us from the u.s then you probably already have watched or you have access anyway to yeah. watch them <laughs> in australia it hasn't been released yet it's going to be released we're in lining australia. up our episode with the release of the show so it should be about the same time to catch on that Handmaid's Tale fever. And I don't know what we're going to be able to do in terms of avoiding spoilers or not, so we'll see. But again, the book is 30-something years old, so hopefully you've read the book. And, and there, uh, there is already a film version of it from, like, the 80s as well. Have you seen the film no, version? No, I actually haven't. You should see the 80s film Maybe version. Maybe I will watch that before mm. next fortnight. Yes. Actually, well, there's a um, challenge we can give to our listeners. Oh, yeah. You either can read The Handmaid's Tale watch or the watch the original film. film. And then watch the Hulu version if you have access to Hulu. Starring Elizabeth Moss. Yes. And then you'll be ready and ready to go. Cameos by Margaret Atwood herself. That's coming very soon. We're excited. We hope you're excited. So before we go, as we always finish with, if you like the podcast, don't be afraid to leave us a review on iTunes. It truly is the best way that you can show us your support. Except now. So either one of those things would be rad. Tell your friends if you like the podcast. Don't be afraid to tweet us, email us. And again, thank you for the suggestion for Gudrun this time around. At the Academic Chick. And keep sending us your suggestions. We're going on the list. Don't worry, they're going on the list. We will get to them. So that's all from us for this week. Thank you once again for joining us. And thank you to Brenda Davies for the sound, India Hui for the music. My God, thank you to Brendan this time around. Seriously, you guys, you have no idea. (laughs) We've had a lot of technical difficulties. We have had so many technical difficulties. Thank you, Brendan. Okay, then that's all. See you next time. See you next time. Bye.